welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Samuel chapter 15 today. 2 Samuel chapter 15. All right. How many of you guys have seen the movie The Fugitive? I need to see some hands. Anybody seen The Fugitive? All right. Several of us. If you did not raise your hand, you have homework. Go home, read your Bible, and watch The Fugitive. It's very important. An excellent movie. This movie has Tommy Lee Jones in it, and it's Harrison Ford, and it's a, it's a drama about a doctor who is framed for his wife's murder. And this whole movie is about after he has escaped from prison, he had a wreck in a prison van. He escaped from prison and, and he's trying to find out who actually killed his wife and, and what they did. And he comes upon this conspiracy of a pharmaceutical company who um, has this great conspiracy. They were actually trying to kill him, but ended up killing his wife. And, and through this whole movie, you see this, this push for him to figure out who killed his wife and why. But the backstory is Tommy Lee Jones is the U.S. Marshal and he is on the trail of Harrison Ford this entire time. And so there's these really high drama moments where Tommy Lee or um, Harrison Ford is running. He's he's trying to get away from the police. There's one instant where he jumps off of a dam to get away because he's got to find out who killed his wife. But there are also a lot of slow scenes, and I love the slow scenes because it kind of sets up Harrison Ford's emotional turmoil during this. It, it's not just all car chases and fugitive running away. It's it's these moments of where you get to see his heart and the problems that he's suffering here. Several scenes in this that stand out from me is, is there's a scene where he just goes to sleep and he has nothing but he's freezing so he covers himself in leaves. And in one instant you see that he, he's so hungry and he breaks into a hospital trying to, to get some information on this conspiracy that took the life of his wife and, and he walks by the, the uh, room of this patient who has fallen asleep and their tray is sitting there. And so he goes in there and like he makes the ugliest looking sandwich I've ever seen of just everything on there and shoves it in his mouth. And you get this picture of who he was, a doctor with, with a beautiful wife and, and an amazing life to, to who he has become since he had to go on the run. And you see the difference in, in who he was and who he is now. Uh, last week we started a story that it's a lot like that. It, it's David and his son Absalom, and, and David has everything. He is the king of Israel. He is loved and respected up until the point that his son decides to take the kingdom from him. Absalom looks at David and goes, I would be a better king, or I would be happier if I was the king. And so he comes up with this vast conspiracy of how to take the throne from David. And just to remind you, if you missed it, or if, or if you forgot, or if you missed it, Absalom comes up with this plan where he starts to turn people against David by saying, you know, you've got some problems and boy, if I was in charge, I would fix that. After several years, the hearts of Israel are with Absalom, and at that point, Absalom declares himself king, and now David is on the run, fighting this conspiracy to take over the kingdom. And he has these moments, much like Harrison Ford in the future, where he's in panic and despair, wondering what's behind him in these slow moments. And we get this picture of David in the story of who he was, a king with a palace and a crown and all the riches to who he is now, a, a fugitive on the run. <clears throat> 
the Bible records not only these moments for us, but it also records David's heart. David wrote about 73 of the Psalms, and over a third of them he wrote during this particular season of his life. He wrote songs of praise and songs of crying out to God because he was in such a deep, emotional, problematic state that he was trying to overcome with his son, not only taking his kingdom, but trying to kill him. Well, we're going to pick up this story again in 2 Samuel 15, where we verses 13 through 16, and pick up the story of what David is dealing with here. And there came a messenger to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us, and smite the city with the edge of his sword. And the king's servant said unto him, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever the Lord my king shall appoint. So we see this conflict, and, and David knows that this is going to a civil war. He knows that as Absalom has declared himself king, as he's building himself an army and a military, he's coming for David's palace. And, and he knows that there is going to be a fight over who will be the king of Israel. So at this point, we have two kings. And, and this is important to understand the rest of the story, and it's our first take-home truth, is that this is a battle of a king chosen by God versus a king chosen by people. Now, that's important to understand where both of these men derive their authority from. If you look at David, you can go back in, in 1 Samuel, and you can see the story of when David is chosen by Samuel because God has picked him. God has chosen him, but Absalom anointed himself. And you can see the difference in their two, um, their two leadership styles based on, on how they became king and, and who God chose to be king. You, you have David who is a servant and Absalom who is willing to make others a servant for them. You see this as we get ready for this battle or the civil war. When David hears that Absalom has the heart of the people and he's coming for Jerusalem, David decides to leave. Why, why does David leave his kingdom? Why does he leave his palace, his throne, and in his power? Why does he leave that all behind? It could be because David's a coward. He's scared. He doesn't want to fight. But then again, we're talking about a man who took a rock and killed a giant. I think he's probably not a coward. That doesn't really fit him. It could be that he, he's tired of being king. Uh, this is a, a tiring job. I don't want the stress and I don't want the drama anymore. Maybe I'm done with that. But you don't see that in the story, David. He, after this is over, he becomes king again. So why is it that David just decides to run? Why doesn't he stay to fight? Why doesn't he stay to protect what is rightfully his, what God has given him? David explains this as he tells his people to prepare to run. He said, Absalom is coming. He will lay run to us. And this is what he says. He will destroy the city with the edge of the sword. And you see a picture of David's heart and what kind of leader he is here, that he's willing to give up his kingdom and his right to leave, <clears throat> lead in order to protect the city. You see, David puts the needs of others before himself. And the opposite is true of Absalom, at least is from what David's opinion tells us. Is David says he'll come here and he'll destroy. We've got one king who is willing to sacrifice for his kingdom and one king who is willing to destroy those that he's supposed to serve. You can see the differences in their leadership styles and who will allow the city to suffer, suffer and who will not. And this is the difference between a God-chosen king and a self-chosen king. The difference between godly leadership and selfish leadership. 
See, David, the Bible tells us his palace overlooked the city and he, he could walk around his palace and he could look out over the whole city and, and I have this picture of David just strolling across the roof of his palace and he looks over the city and he can see it burning. He can see in his mind the, the children that will grow up without fathers after this epic battle, the women that will have to live as their husbands were killed and he says, it's not worth it. I'll give up my place as king to protect this. That brings us to our second take-home truth is that godly leadership will always be servitude. Godly leadership will always be servitude. If you want a godly leader, you need to look for a leader that leads with godly leadership, a leader who is a servant. In America, we have all of these leadership criteria that we tend to look at, these, these things that we say qualify people for leadership, to be in some position of authority. Maybe they dress really nice. I hope that suit is just really ironed correctly and they dress nice. Maybe they're good looking. Maybe they're young and energetic, or maybe they're old and wise. Maybe, maybe they have different degrees. They've had success in the past. They're great motivators. We tend to look at these qualifications for leaders, but we leave out the most important thing. See, all of those are important. None of them are bad, but they're not the most important. Godly leadership is the most important when we look to leaders. And if you don't believe that, look at the people in the king discussion, discussion in Israel up to this point. The first king of Israel was Saul, and, and he was chosen basically on his physical stature. He just had this present when he walked into the room. The Bible says that he stood head and shoulders above everybody else, and he just looked and felt like a king. This man has got to be a great leader. If you look at Absalom, he was, he was good looking, he was smart, and he was charming. Even when Samuel goes to anoint the second king, he'll end up anointing David, but he goes into Jesse's house and he looks at the first son and the first son is tall and he's good looking, he's got muscles. And he says, oh, that's a king. And God says, no, that's not my king. And, and then he looks at the second son, he goes, oh, that's a king. And God says, no, that's not the king. All the way down to David, the most unkingly of them all, the, the one who should have never led based on his uh, qualifications. He had no college degrees. He had no leadership experience. He had no success in this in the future. But God taught Samuel, he said, I look at the heart of a man, not the outward appearance. And so many times today when we look for leaders, we look at the outward appearance and not the heart behind it. We live in a country where we are blessed to get a say in who our leaders are. We choose everything from the city council to the mayor to the governor to the representatives to the president of the United States to the most powerful man in the world. We get a say in choosing leadership. And if you want a godly leader, if you want someone who will lead in the right way, we've got to choose people who lead with a servant's heart. We have a say, some of us may have a say at who the leaders are at work. We get to hire and fire people at our jobs or, or we get to be on committees that hire the leaders of ours. Don't look for the qualifications. Look for the servants. And at some point in the future, this church will have to find a new pastor. I don't intend to live forever. But as we look for leaders in the church, whether it's a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or a deacon, we've got to look for those who are servants first, who lead in a godly way. I think this also tells us how to be a leader. Some of you have leadership positions in the professional world. You, you have the ability to hire people. You have the ability to pick people who are over certain departments. You have the ability to do those things. And this is what the Bible teaches us about leadership in the professional world, is to always remember that you serve those that you are over. See, it makes sense to me that if God has brought you in a place that he's called you into leadership, 
and you're a Christian, so therefore you're called to be godly in everything you do. It makes sense to me that God has thus called you to godly leadership. God has called you to serve those below you. God has called you to take care of those. And you see a picture of what this looks like in David. David gives up everything. David was king. David gives up his home to protect the people that he ruled over. David gives up his title. He gives up his reputation. You think there weren't people in Israel going, ha, I knew Absalom was a better leader. David's a coward. Look at him run into the desert. He gives it all sacrificially to serve those that he is put in charge of. And I don't think that it's a coincidence that as we've made 2021 our year of focusing on sacrificial service, that God has led us to a story in which David lives that out and shows us what it means, not just to be a servant, but to have to sacrifice to be a servant. David goes from king of Israel to being homeless overnight. He loses everything to take care of those below him. Let's continue reading the story, verses 17 through 23 here. And the king went forth and all the people after him and tarried in a place that was far off. And his servants passed beside him and all the Carathites and the Pelathites and the Gittites, 600 men which came after him from Gath, passed on before the king and said to the king Ittai, the Gittite, Wherefore goest thou also with us? Return thy place and abide with the king, for thou art a stranger and also an exile. Where else thou camest but yesterday, should I this day make thee go up and down with me? Seeing I go whither I may, return thou, and take back thy brethren. Mercy and truth be with thee. And Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord liveth, and as the Lord my king liveth, surely in what place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or in life, even where also will thy, be, thy servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go and pass over. And Ittai the Gittite passed over, and all his men and all the little ones that were with him. And all the country wept with a loud voice. And all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the brook Kidron, <clears throat> the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. So as David leaves, it tells us that he takes his household with him. And, and this word in Hebrew means more than just the people that live in your house. The household is everybody that belongs to you. This, this is your, your servants go with you. This is your extended family. Even, yes, even your mother-in-law, or in David's case, your mother-in-laws. They, they all travel with you. All of your children, David's many wives went with him. And as he's leading out of the city, he, he stops as a giant procession passes by him. And he's, he's taking them off into the wilderness. And I, I want you to look at what fighting men are with him. What people are there? It's the Carathites, the Pelathites, and the Gittites. All foreigners. You notice not a one of those. He doesn't say, and the Israelites with him. All foreigners. And specifically, all three groups of these people were Philistines. Uh, if you look at the Bible during this time, you realize that the Philistines and the Israelites were, were arch enemies. As a matter of fact, David fought them on many occasions, yet he had these groups of people that followed him and went with him. Focusing on the Gittites for just a second, this, this is a group of people that had been following him for years. Before David became king, as Saul was trying to kill him in this, this time, almost like this, David was in hiding and he went to Gath, a Philistine city. And he sat there for a year and four months. And in that time, he had such a following that 600 of these Gittites came out and followed him. He secured their loyalty to the point that he put them in charge of being his personal bodyguard. These were the men that were responsible for the personal safety of the king. And as David's leaving the city, he pulls them aside and he goes, listen, 
I appreciate what you guys are doing here. I know that you're loyal to me, but he even calls him King Absalom. I said, why don't you go back to the city? Follow King Absalom. Take care of him. Serve him. Don't come with me. And David tells him, he said, I don't have a right to ask you to, to live a fugitive lifestyle with me. I don't have a right to ask you to, to live in the desert. I don't have a right to do that to you. Go back and live your life. The king will accept you if you will promise to serve him. And you look at what they say to him. They say, no, we're going with you. We're following you. We're taking care of you. The Bible doesn't say why they did this. So that's a weird thing for somebody to say. I'll follow you, king, even if you're not the king anymore. Even if you don't have power. Even if you can't pay us to be your bodyguards. Even if we live in a desert, I'll follow you. And Why would somebody follow David that strongly? And the Bible doesn't say specifically, but, but I think if you study David enough, I think it wouldn't be a hard jump to say that he won their hearts with his integrity and his care for others. Undoubtedly, there were few kings like David who would serve others in a way that he would sacrifice of himself. You look at Absalom, and Absalom won influence by trickery. He won Absalom by false service, but David won influence by character and love. As David is fleeing out, he, he looks in the rearview mirror and he looks at the city and he realizes that he's leaving everything he knows behind. He's got this group of people, but chances of him becoming king again at this point are almost none. He has no army or not a big enough army. The people of Israel seem to hate him. His son has all of the, all of the people, all of the military, even David's most trusted advisor. And David feels a need to once again just write. And he gives us a look into his heart. Remember, he has nothing. Imagine the, the brokenness that he's feeling, dealing, dealing with the betrayal of a son and losing everything. And now he's fleeing, if you look at a map, he's fleeing east into the desert. He's not going to live in, in a place with lots of food. He's going to live in the desert. Have you guys ever been to the desert? It's a lonely, desolate place. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Nevada and visit an aunt. And, and one of those days, I slipped off and I had read that in this area there were some hiking trails. And one of them was a hiking trail. It wasn't real long, but it went up to an old Pony Express station. You guys know me, like history stuff, like I've got to go see this Pony Express station. And so I parked my car on the side of this highway miles out of town. And, and I began walking this little trail. There were no trees, no vegetation. There, there was nothing. It was just dirt and dead bushes and one jackrabbit's hole I saw. He was big too. He was about that tall. Scared me to death. I, I was walking out there and I went up and I was exploring around the ruins of this old Pony Express station and, and checking everything out and, and I ended up just sitting on the wall and, and just kind of focusing on what was around me and it was the loneliest place I've ever been. Not because I was wishing there were people around me but, but in the desert you can see forever. In the desert there's nothing that comforts you. In the desert, it's dry, which luckily I carried like eight bottles of water with me. That's just a little too many for that little hike that I was on. And you just felt complete loneliness and isolation and desolation. And it was like, it was like the epitome of depression in the desert. Complete silence, no people around. And this is the world that David's walking into, into a, a desert that is dry. And physically he's doing that, but I think it shows his emotional state too. David being forced away from his home and life and into this both physical and emotional desert. This is what he writes in Psalm 63. I'll read the first six verses of this. It says, Truly my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. Oh, wrong one. I knew I was going to do that. 63. I was reading 62. God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. 
My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a day and in, in, in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. To see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen in the sanctuary, because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. De David, going into this desert, going away from everything that he knew and everything that he loves, was thirsty for God. He wanted God so badly in that moment, and I think it is only in the times when we are broken that we truly thirst for God the way that we should. Look at the words that David uses here in these first couple of verses. He uses the words, I thirst, I seek, and I long for you. He takes his emotional state and he compares it to the desert where I just, I just want to be with someone and I, I just need water. And so this is his desperate plea and, and I love what he says later. He explains why. God, what, why do I need you in this moment? Why isn't it enough to say, God, I long for my kingdom back. I thirst for my power back. Why does he say, God, I thirst for you? He says this, he says, because you are better than life. That's a heavy statement. David's, David's gonna make some heavy statements in this. I long for you more than I long for life. And when we hear the word life, we think of like the physical, like being alive. And, and that would be a correct interpretation of the scripture. But, but that word has a deeper meaning in Hebrew than it does in uh, English. This, this word is also used to describe green vegetation and running water. You know in spring, spring's coming, I hope. I hope it gets here and you never know anymore. But you know in spring when you get to March and it's been cold and wet and cloudy and you get like that, that first day, it's like 65 degrees and the sun is shining and the, and the wind's blowing gently, not the stuff we've got going on outside and, and, and the trees are just starting to bud out and a few flowers will pop out. You, you know that, that moment where we say the world is coming back to life. That's what David means here. That's what David means. And David says, the, the state that I'm in, God, where I desire the world to come back to life, where I desire the desert to dry up and water to run and flowers to bloom, God, I desire you more because you are better than that. It says my soul's gonna be satisfied. My soul will be satisfied in that. You know what the term satisfied means? It means I don't need anything else. David, homeless, his own family betraying him. His kingdom turned his back on him and he says, God, I thirst for you because you're better for life and that is all I need. I don't need a kingdom. I don't need a crown. I don't need power. God, I will be satisfied just with the fact that I have you. And this is what I think of when I'm in my bed. When he talks about the night watches and laying in his bed, he said, I will meditate on you you guys know nighttime, right? It's, it's like you go to bed and there's that, depending on who you are, if you're one of those like 10 second sleepers or one of those 10 minute sleepers, it takes you a while to go to bed. There's that moment of time when you lay in bed and your body relaxes and you take a deep breath and your mind just starts to decompress the day. And, and that's the day where we focus on the negative the most. Maybe, maybe that's where the anxiety finally comes out, the worry. I, I've dealt with something all day and this is the point where I can just kind of grit my teeth. And I think for a lot of us, that moment's when we might've been strong all day, but that's when we finally let a tear or two run down our face and just, just let it out at the end of the day. 
David says, when I'm in that moment, at the end of the day, when I'm not worried about organizing the movement of my people, when I'm not worried about where we're gonna make camp, when I'm not leading these people, when it's just me and there's nothing else and it's quiet and I'm alone, when that starts to set in, the death and desolation and the desert in my soul, God, I'm gonna be satisfied in you. I'm gonna focus on you. If you continue reading this Psalm, verse seven here, it says, because thou hast been my help, Therefore, in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after, the, uh, after thy right hand upholdeth me. But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth, and they shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for the foxes, but the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory, but the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped." As David continues on in this psalm, as he continues on explaining his relationship with God, you see that in this most intense moment that he has this confidence in God. But notice what David has his confidence in. He doesn't have confidence in God restoring him. He doesn't say, one day I'll be the king again. God has confidence in God's justice. God ha David has confidence in God's ability to, to take care of this, that one day justice will be served. But he says nothing about being king again. He says nothing about going back to his palace. He says nothing about taking care of anything, just that God is just and justice will be done. I think a lot of us are living in the opposite of that right now. We're putting our confidence in God, but we're putting it in a hope of the things that we want. God will punish those that have hurt us. God, God's gonna do something. I'm gonna go through all of this hardship right now, but one day he's gonna reward me for having to deal with this or, or there's hope that one day whatever I'm dealing with will be over. David doesn't see that in God. David says it doesn't matter if it ends. It doesn't matter if God fixes it. My soul is satisfied in just knowing that God is in control and that God is just. If you go back... <clears throat> in the scripture, you realize that at this point, David has reached a point where God is enough. So our next take home truth is God is enough. And, and that's a level of faith and trust very few Christians ever get to, that God is enough. We say he's enough, but we don't get there. <clears throat> Let's continue reading the story. Just a few more verses here. This is verses 24 through 29 back in 2 Samuel. And lo, Zadok also and all the Levites were with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they sat down the ark of God, and Abathur went up unto all the people had done passing out of the city. And the king said to Zadok, Carry back the ark of God into the city. If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he thus says, I have no delight in thee, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. The king said also to Zadok the priest, Art thou not a seer? Return into the city in peace, and your two sons with you, Ahimez the, thy son, and Jonathan the son of Abathur. See, I will tarry in the plain of the wilderness until there come word from you to certify me. Listen what David says in this moment. As David leaves, the, the high priest looks and says, the king is leaving and he has to make a decision. And, and the, the Bible actually um, kind of hints that, that this man had the, the, ability to prof the ability of prophecy. 
And so he sees this and he sees this problem going on between David and Absalom. And he says, okay, where are we going to stand on this? Are we going to stay in the city as the city falls? Or are we going to follow the king with the Ark of the Covenant? He makes the decision that David is the king chosen by God. And so they take the Ark of the Covenant and they're following David out. To understand the importance of this, we need to understand the Ark of the Covenant and what it represents. This represents God's presence with his people. In his temple in the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelt, the Ark of the Covenant sat there. And this represents his ability to be among his people, but not physically with them because we are separated from our sin. And many times in the Bible, this is carried into battle, and it was almost a sure thing that if you carried the Ark of the Covenant into the battle with you, that you would win that battle because that was God being with you. That was God's power and presence with your army. And nobody can take down the power and presence of God. In one instance in the Bible, um, the Ark of the Covenant is actually captured, and they take it and they sit it before a false god named, named Dagon. And when they come in the next morning, they had set it in front of this false god as like an offering to him. The statue of Dagon had fallen down and was bowing before the Ark of the Covenant. They set the statue up and, and it happened again. And, and then that city began to have plagues. And they finally realized um, this thing that represents the God of the Israelites, this is what's causing our problem. And for the next several chapters of that story, that Ark bounces from city to city as they're trying to get rid of it because it has so much power. They don't even want it anymore. And it comes to the point they finally say, give it back to the Israelites. We don't want the presence of God with us with him being angry with us. This is a powerful object that's coming out with David as he is about to go into a civil war. And David turns to the priest and he says, take it back. I, I don't want the Ark with me. But David, David, this, this guarantees that you will come out ahead. This guarantees that any battle you go into, you'll win. This is the presence of God with you. David says, take it back. I forfeit that right to have that with me. And then he says this. I want to read verse 26 again. Speaking of God, but if he thus says, I have no delight in thee, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seemeth good to him. As David sees this ark and his ability, and if he was selfish enough, he could have took that with him. David says, I don't want it. I'm trusting in God's plan in this. I don't need this, this object to help me win a battle. And it's a big thing to say because what David's saying is, is take it back. If God's done with me being king, okay. If God's done with me living in a palace, okay. If God wants me to live in a desert for the rest of my life, okay. If God wants my life, that, that's okay with me. He's completely surrendered to God's will. He says, I don't need the ark. God is in control. This is a next level trust that very few of us ever get to. We say we trust God, but what we trust in is in his ability and power. But what you see out of David is David had a complete trust in God's will. Whatever God decides to do with this situation is okay. That's our last take on truth, is, is being thirsty for God's will, or being thirsty for God means being thirsty for God's will. Most of us as followers of Christ, we never reach this thirsty for his protection we're thirsty for his power but we don't thirst for his will if god came to us today and he said i've got a plan i'm going to do something great i'm going to make something great out of you but but you're going to have to go through betrayal i've got a plan but you're going to have to walk through some hurt i've got a plan but you're going to have to suffer for a few years before that's accomplished i think most of us would look at god and go uh, no thanks 
your plan's good and all, but it, that, that's contrary to what I want for my life. That's contrary for, for what's, what my will is. God, I don't want your will, I want my will. And I think that every person in here, if we've legitimately tried to follow Christ, we've come to that crossroads where it's my will goes that way and, and God's will goes this way. And it's hard to follow his will. It's hard to do what God calls us to do. But our ability to thirst after the will of God is a major part of our connection to God. If I ask you, what is the most intimate time that you share with God? The time that you feel the closest to him? What would you say? I bet most of us would say that it's either during worship or during our prayer time. That's when we feel the most connected to God. That's when we feel his presence the most. And both of those are times when we come and we put ourselves in the correct position with God here and me here. God is worthy of worship. I am not. God, you have the power. I do not. And let's focus on prayer for just a second. This moment where we come in this intimate connection and this conversation with God, where, where we get to speak to him. And I'm not talking about the prayers that we've all prayed before lunch down here at Colton's. You know, God bless this food to the nourishment of our body. Amen. Not that prayer. I'm talking about the prayers where we pour out our hearts. When we're broken and we're hurting and we go to God and we just sob. God, I need your help. God, I'm thirsty for you. In those times, during that connection, Jesus taught us how to pray. He gave us instruction for how to pray. We, we call it the Lord's Prayer, almost like the Lord's Supper. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And you guys probably know that by heart. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the first thing that we're to pray? Thy kingdom come and thy will be done. God, Jesus tells us in our most intimate connection with God in this time when we come to him and pray for things before we pray for others before we ask anything of ourselves, we always preface it with this moment of humility and surrender God your will be done God what you want in my life first these, these requests second <clears throat> we surrender to him completely in those moments and once again, we see David is ahead of the game here. He's given up his kingdom, his home, and his reputation. And he looks at God in this moment and he says, uh, not my will, but God's will. And in this moment, he says that in that decision, and, and the decision to accept God's will and to be thirsty for God's will, he says, my heart is satisfied. I, I don't need anything else. This is better than life to me, to just trust in God and trust his plan no matter what what it brings. Brother Danny, if you want to start making your way up here. God offers the same intimacy with you and me. And we can be satisfied the same way David was, but listen, God will not meet you on your terms. When we come to God, he asks us to come with a heart of surrender and a heart of humility and a heart of saying, your will above mine. God, what do you want for my life over what I want? And I think everybody in here at some point today, tomorrow, this week is going to come to that crossroads where God's going to say, go left and we want to go right. Some of you have been fighting that for a long time. God is asking you to surrender in humility and put your faith and trust in him and become a follower of him so he can have that intimacy with you and you've been fighting it because I just, I won't give up my will for God's will. And for those of us that are believers, he calls us to live in certain ways and he calls us to sacrifice and he calls us to love. 
And he may call us to walk through hard times. And I just want to ask you, have you been able to praise God the way that David has? Say, God, my heart is satisfied in you and, and what your plans are, that's, that's enough for me. As we go into our reflection time, this is a time for you to just surrender yourself to God. Surrender to his will. Put your faith in him and find satisfaction in all that he is.